0: You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We're going to finish out uh, this chapter by looking at verses 30 through 33 uh, this morning. We've kind of taken our time to, uh, to get through um, this chapter. One reason it's not been an easy chapter uh, to get through. Uh, there's uh, difficult uh, teachings and doctrines here, including the doctrine of election, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, and those are, are difficult, but, but one of the things that we note is that these, are, these doctrines are a part of Scripture, and uh, so w- we don't just have an easy out that, well, I don't believe them uh, because they're there. And uh, so, we have to grapple with them, and and Paul has showed us that over and over again from Romans 9. He's shared with us numerous verses of Scripture uh, uh, to as a foundation for His truth for us. And uh, so it's very difficult, this, this idea of the sovereignty of God and, and salvation and the doctrine of election. I'll just share with you a bit of a testimony uh, to begin this morning. There was a, a time in my life where I really wrestled with these doctrines. Uh, I struggled with them. And, and the tension for me was that I couldn't find the comfortable place Um, in understanding how the the sovereignty of God worked with the responsibility of man. And uh, I I, I wrestled with it for a while, but at some point in the struggle, and it was during my seminary uh, training, uh, somewhere along in there, that I realized something. I realized that I I could never reconcile those two truths together. And, And then... I realized something I think may even be been more important for me, and and that is that I didn't have to reconcile them. Um, I'm not sure who said this, maybe Spurgeon, I think it was him, who said in regards to these two truths, he said, I never try to reconcile friends. And, and once I begin to, to accept the fact that, that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are both taught in the Bible, um, and, and that they will never work together in ways that, that I can comprehend as a, a human being, that I'll never fully understand, but that both of those things are taught. And I need to believe that and, and rest in those truths. And you think about it, there are paradoxes that are taught in Scripture, aren't they? Um, the paradox, truths that don't seem to be compatible with one another. And I was thinking this week, and, and you know this, is a great example of the doctrine of the Trinity. We just, we just sang about it in that hymn, All Creatures of Our God and King. How can God be one, one uh, and, and yet three persons? And in some sense, I have no idea. Um, And I've heard all kinds of human attempts to explain that, by the way. I've heard about the water and the ice and the vapor and the shapes and uh, the egg, and the rela- human relationships, and all of these different analogies. But all of them end up falling short. And all of them ultimately either deny the deity of Christ, or the personhood of the Holy Spirit, or the unity of the Godhead. And the reason is, is there's simply no human comparison or human analogy that can explain the Trinity. And yet God's Word clearly teaches it, doesn't it? over God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, one in three persons. And though I don't fully understand that church, I believe it with all of my heart, because His Word says it's so. And the same is true with me in, in terms of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And, and I would just caution you that those who tend to emphasize one over the other will always end up doing damage to one and the other, or the other. Or you'll have to do some kind of special uh, hermeneutical, I, I would call it hermeneutical gymnastics to get to some place where you're trying to figure these things out, and ultimately it's going to lead you astray. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if you're struggling with this, number one, you are in good company. Because people have struggled with this for hundreds of years. Um... And, and, and I would also encourage you with this. You don't have to figure this out. Um, and in fact, you can't. And, and so rest in it. Rest in God's Word. Rest in what it plainly says. Rejoice in His Word. Think about it from this way. If, if, if you could figure out God completely, He wouldn't be much of a God. Because He would be like you or me. And the ways of God, difficult to figure out. That's why there's, we need faith, isn't it? Faith in Him. And so rejoice in what's being said here. Don't let it cause consternation in you. Rejoice in in, in these truths about the sovereignty of God because they are meant to give you as a believer, that's who this is addressed to, they are meant to give you as a believer a rock-solid foundation, a foundation that goes back to the end of chapter 8 that nothing can separate you from the love of God through Jesus Christ. The reason, this is what undergirds it, your salvation is deeper, than you ever dreamed or imagined. It is rooted in the sovereign mercy of God who saved you beforehand, the Bible says. And so rejoice in that. And then rejoice with what's about to be said about human responsibility. Because if that makes you really uncomfortable, I can assure you that the responsibility side of this is going to make you uncomfortable too. But yet in a very different way know that God's sovereignty does not nullify man's responsibility. It doesn't give us permission to sit and do nothing, Uh, but, but, but rather it fuels us. It fuels us to proclaim the gospel. It fuels us to call men, women, boys, and girls to repent and believe and to confess Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. It leads us to pray all the more for the lost. That God would save them. Both of those truths come from a righteous and good God, and so rest in them, rejoice in them, and respond faithfully to them. My goodness, that's almost a sermon before a sermon, isn't it? Well, let's look at our text today Romans 9 verse 30 Paul says what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it though that is a righteousness that is by faith but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law why because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Heavenly Father, we pray as we, we always do when we come to your word. We need help to understand. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear today and minds that can that can grasp what is being said here. May Your Spirit illumine our minds and hearts to these things. And uh, we pray that You would have Your will and way in our lives, Lord, transforming us, shaping us to an understanding of You and to be more like Your Son, Jesus. And we pray as well, I pray that You would use me today as Your servant. I pray that You would increase and I would decrease and Your Word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've seen this question from Paul several times in his letter, this what shall we say then? And uh, it's always a, a, a chance, I think, to, okay, slow down for a moment, hit pause, let's gather our thoughts and think about all of what has been said here and, and where these things are, are leading us. And so we should do that this morning. I remind you the central question of this chapter has been that if the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, but for the Jew first and then the Gentile, the question has been, why are so few Jews believing in the gospel? And it wasn't just a theological question for Paul. We've seen that he had a deep uh, lo- emotion tied to this, a love for his people. If you were to survey uh, the chapters of Acts, uh, about chapter 13 or so to chapter 21, and you read about the journeys, the missionary journeys of Paul, you, you'll see that the pattern of, of Paul, that he would go from city to city, and he would always go to the Jewish synagogue first. Everywhere he went, he would go in and he would proclaim the gospel there, and pretty much without fail, his message would be rejected, and he would be run out of the synagogue, and so then Paul would go to the Gentiles. He would take the gospel to anybody else who would hear the good news. And uh, it was heartbreaking for Paul to see this, to experience this over and over again, to see his kinsmen, the Israelites, rejecting the gospel. He shared of his heartbreak in this, chapter 9, the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 through 5, about the great sorrow, the unceasing anguish this was bringing uh, to his life. He shared it again in the very next verse after our text, chapter 10, verse 1, "'Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved.'" But the question that's lurking behind all this is why? Has God's saving purpose toward the Israelites failed? Uh, that, that was a question that was raised in verse 6 in which Paul has been answering. Why are so few of the Jews coming uh, to faith in, in Christ? Why, are, why aren't they believing? This is their Messiah, he's saying. And so Paul answers that with, has God's promise saving pro- promises failed? The, the, the answer is emphatically no. First of all, uh, God's saving purposes have not failed because... Uh, He says that all whom God has elected to salvation are or will be saved. That's been his point from verses 9 all the way to, or verse 6, excuse me, all the way to verse 24. All in whom God has elected will be saved. Not all Israel, remember that, Uh, verse 6 or 7 there, not all Israel, that is the nation, uh, are truly Israel, that is the people of God. Just because you were an Israelite did not guarantee your salvation. And Paul listed Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau as examples, and he's told us that, that salvation is, is from the electing mercy, grace of God in Christ apart from anything that we have done. We're saved by His mercy and grace. And so Israel's rejection of the gospel was not because God was unfaithful to keep His promises to them. The, the, the fault is not with God. In fact, secondly, he says, God's saving purposes have not failed uh, because God has previously revealed that not all of Israel would be saved. It was never His His promise to begin with, that was the subject of verses 25 through 29 that we talked about last week, because if God had promised to save all of the Jews, then God would have indeed failed in His promises. But He cited those Old Testament prophecies there, Hosea and Isaiah Hosea referring to the Gentiles, verse 25, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. That's God welcoming Gentiles into the promise of salvation. And then citing Isaiah in verse 27, he writes, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Lots of descendants, he said, that was his promise, but not all of them would be saved. And so now Paul gives a third reason that God's saving purposes have not failed. As he he, he continues his argument, it's because the failure of the Jews to believe, here's what he's saying in this text, our text, the failure of the Jews to believe was their own fault, not God's. And that's going to be his focus here beginning in verse 30 all the way through chapter 10. Why did the Jews fail to believe in Jesus Christ as their Messiah and Savior? Paul says it was not God's fault. And again, we're reminded of Stott's quote that we talked about last week, if anyone is lost, the blame is theirs, and if anyone is saved, the credit is is god's that's what is being taught here and so from a big picture standpoint romans 9 6 through 24 has been explaining why anybody is saved it is the sovereign election of god beginning in verse 30 here though paul is showing why anybody is lost why anybody is lost and the explanation that he gives is that it's their own responsibility those two things again not Easily or not not possible, really, to reconcile all of the dynamics involved. But let's look at the details of what he says. He makes several contrasts here between the Gentiles and the Jews that help us to understand salvation. And so let's notice a few of them this morning. First of all, they were different in their pursuit. The Jews and Gentiles pursued differently. One pursuing grace uh, and one law, he says. Verse 30, what shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. So you have Gentiles here who Paul uses, I think, synonymously with unbelievers, everybody else who's not Jews. And he tells us that they are not... Pursuing righteousness. The word righteousness, by the way, used four times in these uh, verses here. Uh, The word it in verse 32 that we'll see is also righteousness in the text. So it's used four times. And if you want to write a little word to help you with that, like what does that mean? It just means justification or salvation. It's the same thing Paul has been talking about all of Romans, salvation. You remember, perhaps, back in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, when he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, then he defines it, the righteousness, the salvation, the justification of God. How does it come? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's interesting, he says here, the Gentiles uh, were not even pursuing this salvation. They weren't pursuing this righteousness at all. They didn't have any interest in it. Uh, they didn't have any of the rich history of the Jews and all of these patriarchs and precious promises and things that would help them to look for the law, things that would help them to look into forward and to see the Messiah, the promise of the Messiah, Jesus, to come. The Gentiles had none of that, Paul says. They had no interest in, in righteousness, no interest in God, no interest in the gospel. And yet, what happened to them, he, he says? He said they attained it that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. The word means to lay hold of. They, 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 They somehow laid hold of this righteousness, this salvation, even though they weren't pursuing it. How? How did they do this? Did they do it themselves? No, God broke into their lives. The gospel came to them. Paul came to them and told them the good news about this, and by God's grace, they were saved. They weren't looking for it. I once was lost, but now I'm found. In God's mercy, they found it. They attained it. They believed. They put their faith in Christ, and they were saved. But notice what he says about the Jews. He says they were pursuing, verse 31, a law, a law that would lead to righteousness, and they didn't succeed in reaching that law. Israel pursued, set out to pursue the law, and the picture here is someone setting out on a journey, if you will. They're they're, they're traveling towards righteousness, uh, towards salvation, but they never arrive at their destination. They never get there. They pursued, in the Greek it's a couple words, they they pursued law righteousness. That's the phrase, law righteousness, referring to the law of Moses. And again, righteousness is a right standing with God, salvation, justification in Him. And so, this was their mentality. An illustration of this, I think we could look to Luke's gospel in chapter 18. We remember um, a parable of the Pharisee and the the publican or the tax collector and how they both went to uh, the temple one day, both of them Jews, um, one of them a Pharisee, but the other one for all intensive purposes had become a Gentile because he'd sold out to the Romans and he was a tax collector. And uh, they, they, they both go into the temple to worship, and we read in Luke 18, Jesus says, the Pharisee standing by himself, here's how he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or, you know, even like this tax collector standing over here. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. And you think about the very mentality of what he's doing, he's checking off boxes, isn't he? He comes to worship, and and he's pursuing the law. This is the goal of my life. It's law-keeping, and in pursuing these things, this is the hope for my salvation. While the other guy, the tax collector, here's how he responds, Luke 18, 13, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." And you wonder what people were thinking when Jesus inquires about which one of these two men do you think found righteousness, found salvation? And he tells us, verse 14, he says, I tell you, this man, that is the tax collector, he went down to his house justified, that's the word, righteous, saved, rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee, just like the Israelites Paul is speaking of here in Romans 9, they're pursuing a salvation in the wrong place. The salvation is not found in the law. That They're heading in the wrong direction, and therefore they're not arriving at the, at the conclusion, the destination of salvation. And you can, you can start to see what their mistake was. And how Paul contrasts this. Notice, secondly, the manner of their pursuit. One was by faith, the other by works. Faith and works. Why didn't the Jews succeed in attaining righteousness or salvation? Paul tells us, verse 32. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. The Jews not only pursued the wrong thing, but they pursued it in the wrong way. They they pursued salvation as though it were based on works. And we know this. He's already told us this back in Romans 2 and 3 and, and, and even part of 4, I think. The law of Moses was never given as a means by which we can attain salvation. We can earn it. Romans 3.20, he said, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified, saved in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law was meant to show us our sins and to show us all the places that we fall short in order that we might look and see our Savior, Jesus Christ. A righteousness, Paul said in Romans 3.21, of God that has been manifested apart from the law, salvation apart from the law, the salvation of God, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This continues to have tremendous application for us today. Because it's not just Jewish people who think this way. I think it was Billy Graham who estimated that that some 80 percent of the people in churches today he said he thinks are are probably lost and partly because they believe that they're saved by their own good works and not by faith in Christ. R.C. Sproul recounted years ago being a part of evangelism explosion. This was a Uh, An evangelistic effort that that was made several years ago, a witnessing method in which one of the questions that were asked to people, if you die tonight and stand before God and God were to say to you, why should I allow you into my heaven? How would you answer? And without fail, some 90% of the people who were asked that question gave a law righteousness answer. I tried to live, I've lived a good life. I'm much better than Joe down the street. No apologies to Joe here, but anyway, I, I, I give to the poor. I, I, I do this. I do that. I go to church. I'm religious. I was baptized. I was all these different things. I do this and, and that. It's the same response. How else can we say this? Paul has said it over and over. It's the point. If you are trusting in your works to save you, you will fail. This has been his message. You you and I do not have the capability of living such a good life that we would ever measure up to the standard that God has put before us. We need a perfect righteousness to save us. A righteousness, Paul says, that is outside of us, it doesn't exist in us. You cannot make it. You cannot. Create it. You cannot earn it. It's it's one that has to come outside of you. And brothers and sisters, that righteousness is found in Jesus alone. Jesus was the only one who lived perfectly. And, And His righteousness, this is salvation, His righteousness is given to us as a gift upon our faith in Him. And that is our only hope, as we sung about, for salvation. This is the tragedy of the Jews that's breaking Paul's heart. They're seeking this salvation that is based on their own righteousness. I've done all of these things. Look, I'm so thankful I'm not like the other guy. I've checked off all these different things. They're seeking it through works, through obedience to the law, rather than faith in Christ. And so long as they do, they'll remain lost. This is what's burdening Paul. Which brings us to the third contrast, and is a contrast of result, uh, which is, we might say, salvation versus stumbling. Here's what Paul writes concerning Israel there at the end of verse 32. He says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, what does that mean? What, what is, who is this stone that causes people to stumble? Well, again, Paul turns to the Scriptures, this time again from Isaiah. Uh, two verses in Isaiah, ironically, that he pieces together. He cites uh, Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen uh, in the first part of the verse and the last part of the verse. And he, he puts Isaiah eight fourteen in the middle of his quotation where it talks about the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. It's interesting how he does this in Isaiah 8:14 that stone or rock of offense Isaiah says is Yahweh himself God himself is the stone and then Isaiah 28:16 implies that this stumbling stone this stone is someone sent by God and so you think about that who is it that would be sent by God but yet would be God himself Now, you know the answer to that church, right? Who is it? Jesus. He is God. He is the stone. He is the divine stone, the divine rock upon which His people are to build. Peter, in his sermon to Jews later on, this is Acts chapter 4, 11 and 12, he says in his sermon, this Jesus is the stone stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This Jesus, this stone, Robert Haldane writes, the designations of a stone and a rock are given to Jesus Christ. They're both presenting the idea that the great work of salvation rests solely on Him. He's the author, He's the foundation upon which it rests, He's the center of which all the lines meet and the origin from which they all proceed. And so Paul is saying here in Romans 9 that the Jews have rejected Jesus. Like a builder who's, who's building a, a, a stonemason and he's building something, he finds the stone and he throws it aside because it seems no good to him. The, the Jews are trying to build their own salvation and, and they're tripping over the very stone that they have disregarded, that they've said is no good to them. But it is the only stone that will save them. Paul says in verse 33 at the end, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Think about that. Paul has said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. But he says here, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the tragedy of what he's writing about. The tragedy of the Jewish nation is that they're seeking salvation based on their own righteousness, and they missed their Messiah. They did not seek Him by faith, but by works of the law, and they're stumbling over this stumbling stone, and this is why Paul's heart is breaking for them. But again, what was true of the Jews then is often true of many more today, isn't it? Barnhouse explains this so well. Men, he says, look for something big. Looking for salvation, we're looking for something big, something obvious, something there. He says, but God put Christ into the world as a low-lying stone, hid away among the long grass of a distant Roman province. And he says, this is how he describes the world, men held their eyes too high and they walked across the world not seeing Christ as God's only answer to their problems and they tripped over him even, stumbled when they came upon him suddenly, but they were offended. They were offended by a, a scheme of salvation which brings man to nothingness in his sins and so they refused God's way." The Barnhouse goes on to describe those who have accepted God's way. He says, they have come, speaking of believers, listen to this, they have come through the tangled grass of this world with their eyes low upon their own bleeding feet, scarred with the walk on the road of sin. And when they have come, To this stone, they have been willing to stand on it and ask for nothing further. They have found, they have believed God's word about the Lord Jesus Christ as being the only way of salvation. They have abandoned their goal, their road, their strength, their pride, and they've taken their stand squarely on the Lord Jesus Christ. And to them comes this trumpeted promise of God, whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. That means when the storms of God's judgment comes, their feet is planted firmly on the rock of Jesus Christ. And though the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock who is Christ. What about you? or what are you pursuing for salvation? Are you trusting today in your own good works? If we were to pull right now and put you on the spot and put a microphone in front of your mouth and say, if you died tonight and you stood before God He said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you answer? What would you answer? If you're trusting in your own good deeds and works to save you, you, you Christ will always be a stone of stumbling for you. Just like the Jews, you'll have no need for him in your life because you have you. Why will you need him? And you will perish in your sins. There really is salvation in no one else and no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. But, oh, church... Blessed is the one who by God's grace comes upon that stone of Jesus. Amen. I mean, feet hurting, bloodied, all the paths that you've soft and went down unfruitful paths all the wounds you've experienced walking through that bristly grass what a grace of God you weren't pursuing this but all of a sudden you found yourself confronted with and hearing this beautiful good news this gospel of Jesus Christ that others have set aside but but it's come to you you and and he's found you and he's inviting you to leave the shifting sands of this self-righteousness and sin and to stand on Him by faith. With this promise, whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Join with the many who have, as the psalmist says, O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for this word today, your word. And uh, we pray that, Lord, it would have its saving and sanctifying effect in our lives once again. For those that don't know you, Lord, we pray for their salvation today. We pray that you would open their eyes to see the, this fruitless path of trying to get there on their own, on their own merit and their own works, but to see the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been offered to them today in the preaching of the gospel. Will they, we pray for them that they would turn from their sins and, and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. And Lord, we pray that as we worship today and and continue on in Sunday school and in conversations, Lord, about you, that we would be like the psalmist, Lord, singing to, to you, making a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. We pray it in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast.